Well, welcome to New City. We're glad to have each of you here across our campuses and online today. Really, really grateful to have each of you. A couple of years ago, I got a strange phone call. It was from a, a married couple that had been married for almost 20 years. And uh, I picked up the, the phone. We, we just had a little small talk and they said, um, hey, we were wondering, Chris, if you could, if you could marry us. Let that sink in for a second. Married couple called. They've been married 20 plus years. And they said, hey, we were just wondering, could you, could you, could you marry us? And it turns out uh, they were doing some tax work and working with somebody. And, and, and the person asked to see a copy of their marriage license. And they dug through their file cabinet, looked everywhere and couldn't find a copy of it. And they called the officiant who married them so, so many years ago. And, 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 and come to find out there was... No documentation that was ever filed for their marriage. So they weren't technically married. So I had the privilege and joy of marrying this married couple. <laughs> and that was strange and amazing. And it reminded me of a really important truth. And that is that documentation of declarations is important. Documentation of declarations it's important. All my CPA friends are nodding their heads today. Yes, this special time of year that we all get to enjoy. Documentation of our declarations is important. And the book of Acts, the book of Acts that we're studying, is Luke's documentation of Jesus' declaration that I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The book of Acts is Luke's documentation of Jesus' great declaration. And we're in this opening series. We said we're going to walk through the book of Acts in three installments. And this first installment is entitled Witness. We're looking at the first five chapters in the book of Acts, specifically around Jerusalem. And Acts is, of course, the sequel to the gospel of Luke, all written by Luke. It's really meant to be seen as one book. And as such, it has more words in it, right? Luke writes more words in the New Testament between the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts than any other author in the New Testament. And Luke shares the purpose of this collective book in Luke chapter 1, verse 4. You can look at it with me. He says, I want to give you an orderly account, Theophilus, which means lover of God. Any lovers of God in the room today? He says, I want to, I want to give you an orderly account, lovers of God, that you may have certainty, the Bible says here, concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke says, I want to put all of this together the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And I want to document this great declaration so that all of you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Certainty is an elusive thing in this world, isn't it? It's difficult to know who we can count on and what we can count on. And Luke says, I want more than anything else for you lovers of God to know that you can count on Jesus that you can count on his promises. In other words, what Luke is saying is, this is the proof, it's true. And in a world that's difficult to know what you can count on, that you can count on Jesus and you can count and know his promises today. So, so, so with that, let's, let's jump into our text today. Let's pick up on our witness series. We're gonna be in Acts chapter three. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, I wanna encourage you to open them or turn them on to Acts chapter three. And our text today is gonna be specifically verses one through 10. Acts chapter three, verses one through 10. Let me read it to you. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. 
And a lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Verse three, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention upon them, expecting to receive something from them. Verse six, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. May God richly bless the reading of his word to you today. What's going on here in this incredible passage? Let's do some context work here from verse one, Luke chapter three. What, what's going on? What's the context of the passage before we jump into the miracle? Well, we have to start with these uh, two men that are listed here in verse one, Acts chapter three, what I would call the, the odd couple, Peter and John. Peter and John are going up to the temple together. And in the biblical text and in historical traditions, we know that Peter and John were very different people. Very different personalities. And it's amazing, and we should see it here in the context of what's happening in this miracle in Acts chapter three, that it begins with the, this odd coupling of Peter and John. This combination that seems to be strange. Peter is, of course, known for his boldness and his, his passion. He's outspoken, he's brash, and Jesus calls him the rock. John, conversely, is known for his kindness, his focus on loving others. He's reflective, he's empathetic, and the Bible describes him as the one that Jesus loved. Isn't it interesting how God oftentimes pairs us off with people that are very different from us? You see, in the kingdom of God, in the church, diversity becomes beauty. It's a force multiplier, if you will. Those who complement our own gifts, our wirings, and our personalities, God brings into our lives for our good and for his glory. God gives us the gift of each other, and it's our job then to help one another to exercise the gifts that God's given to us with greater excellence and godliness so that the kingdom of God can spread and gospel renewal can go forth. I can hear Peter in the context of our passage today saying, I'm going back to the temple. Because you remember in chapter two, Peter's just preached his great sermon. 3,000 people have been added to the church. They begin to live in fellowship and community with one another. And now here in chapter three, he's going back to worship and to witness. And I can hear him saying, I'm going back. I'm going back to the temple to worship and to witness. And I can hear John saying, I'm going with you. Now, some of you have a great call on your life to go and do something, and some of you, the great call on your life is to go with someone and do something. Now, stick with me. Sometimes the call on your life is directed towards you personally, and sometimes the call on your life is to go with someone who has a call and journey with them, to go with them, to stand with them, 
to speak with them, to pray with them, the gift of one another. The phrase one another occurs in the New Testament 58 different times. God wants us to walk with one another. And we see this beautiful picture that if we just jump into the miracle itself, we would miss the context of this beautiful partnership between Peter and John. And this is gonna continue over the next couple of chapters, how God uses this odd couple in incredible ways to complement one another. And he calls us as the church to do the same. Because Jesus doesn't just give us the gift of himself. You remember this from last week? He doesn't just give us the gift of himself. He gives us the gift of one another the gift of the church to walk through this life with so that none of us walks alone. Many early Christians, moreover, in the context, many early Christians kept many of the Jewish habits of worship. That's what's happening here in verse one by way of context. Peter and John are on their way up to the temple, not only to witness, but to worship, to gather together for prayers, which would happen three times a day. This is the evening hour of prayer. This is the ninth hour, which would have been somewhere around 3 p.m. And you say, that's kind of early for evening, but it got dark at 4.30. So they would gather for the evening prayer and then give people enough time to walk home before it got dark. That's what's happening here. And this is the first recorded miracle in the book of Acts. We're gonna study many of the miracles that happened in the book of Acts. This is the first of them in chapter three. There are 14 different recorded miracles throughout the book. There are three that are done by Peter. I'm sorry, four. There are three by, that are done by an angel, four by Peter, and seven by Paul. And also, there are these summary notices of miracles. There's 10 summary notices. So what's a summary notice? It's sort of an encapsulation of all kinds of things that were being done. So there's 14 recorded miracles, but there's so many miracles and things that are happening that, that, that Luke can't put them all in here. And so he puts these summary notices in. And one of them happened last week. We read it in Acts chapter 2, verse 43, where he says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Many wonders, many signs beyond these 14. But this is the first of 14 miracles that are captured in the book of Acts. And what we see here is this really, really important truth that I want you to carry with you today and throughout the week. It's the bottom line for the message that demonstration sets up proclamation. This is the pattern that we're gonna see all throughout the book of Acts, these 14 recorded miracles and these 10 summary statements, all of these incredible works and acts of God right, that are set up for the proclamation of truth. So demonstration sets up proclamation. Action leads to explanation. Uh, deeds lead to words. And the same is true for us today, that we wanna, we wanna speak the words of God and we wanna demonstrate the truth of God, right? We say it here this way at New City, that our good works leads to goodwill that sets up a platform to share the good news, that all of that works together. Demonstration sets up powerful proclamation. And this demonstration is incredible. So let's dive a little bit deeper into it, the miracle itself, this lame beggar that is healed in verses two through 10. Let's start with the man himself. What do we know about him? Well, not a lot. But, but we know here from the text that he was born lame and that his family and friends took him, right? Took him to the temple courts and probably to other public places to, to beg for alms. Now, now, this was an incredible act of faith on behalf of his family and friends because most people in this first century, most people who, who had people in their lives or babies that were born with any kind of defect or deformity or anything, those, those babies were discarded. 
And we see an incredible thing happen here that this family, this community takes on this man and, and helps him and carries him every single day to provide for himself and to provide for his family. And in this, we see an ethic of life. And this is something that we should take notice of as a church because we are people of life. As gospel followers, we believe in life. And we carry with us an ethic and a doctrine of life in utero all the way to the deathbed. We believe and we stand for life. And we see a group of people here who are standing for life because it would have been very easy for them to discard him. So before we turn our noses down on them of, oh my goodness, they're carrying him and leaving him, this was his way of helping to provide for himself and for his family. And he's being carried there every single day. We learn in chapter four, which we'll get to next week, that this man was over 40 years old. So he had been placed at the temple gates for many, many years. People knew him. And it's probable, this is incredible, it's probable that because of his age, that this man probably was in the temple um, gates sitting and, or, and begging for, for alms, just like he does here in the story, probably many times when Jesus came passing by. We don't know the timing of God's healing in our lives. Don't miss this. This man is over 40 years old. He would have seen Jesus' public ministry play out. Probably saw him coming and going from the temple many times, many times. Who knows that he's, you know, he's a few years older than Jesus, so who knows that when Jesus comes through the, the temple as a 12-year-old as a that he wasn't there too. It's incredible to think about, but it also is important to note that Jesus didn't heal him. But his day was coming. His day was coming. And instead of Jesus healing him personally, he heals him through the hands of his apostles. Greater works will you do, Jesus says to his apostles. An incredible thought. And we should hit pause here because, because the reality is many of you are praying for healing, physical healing, in your own lives. And you're praying for family members and for friends. Many of you have a list of, of prayers and people that you're praying for daily for healing that God would intercede. And, and I wanna tell you that God hears every single one of those prayers. God hears the prayers of his people. And if you're a Christ follower, your prayers are heard by God because of Jesus. And I believe when it comes to healing that God answers those prayers for healing in three ways, that he answers all the prayers that, that you're praying for. And he, he answers them in an immediate way. For some of you, you've prayed for people for physical healing and, and they've received that immediately. We have miracle stories in this church and across the city and across the world of people who were prayed for and they were immediately healed. And we see that in the scriptures as well. And I believe that still happens today. For some, secondly, the answer is progressively. That, that in time, healing takes place. For this man, Jesus passed him by. But after Jesus' resurrection and ascension and through the works of the apostles, then he's healed. His day of healing comes. And for some of you, it's a progressive healing. For some of your friends and family members, it'll be a progressive healing. And God sometimes does that miraculously, and sometimes he does it through the hands of doctors and science and medicine that all comes from his hands. And then thirdly, thirdly, Sometimes the answer of, of our prayers, which God answers all of them, is in eternity. It is. And I can't explain why sometimes God answers immediately and sometimes progressively and sometimes in eternity, 
but in the depths of God's heart and his loving heart, we can trust him and his character. And I wanna encourage you to keep praying for the people in your life. Keep praying for, the, for, for yourself, for healing, for what God has placed on your heart and know that your prayers are being heard immediately, progressively, in eternity. It was a common practice for people to beg for alms at the temple courts and gates. This happened all the time. Again, this man had done it for so many years. Can you imagine, can you just imagine all of the interactions that this man must have had over the years? He's 40 plus years old now. He's been lame since birth and he's been carried there and laid there to beg for, for alms. Can you imagine all the different interactions with people and how much of a toll that must have, this must have taken on this man emotionally and spiritually? To, to sit and to beg for alms day after day after day after day. And we're sort of tipped off to the feeling that he has in this interaction. And let, let, let's pick it up here in verses three through five because we see that, that he looks at Peter and John. The Bible says here that he sees Peter and John about, going, uh, about to go into the temple and he asked to receive alms, which he did day after day. This was a common thing for him. He sees them and he asked to receive alms. This was very common. But, but here's where it gets really interesting. Follow along with me. And Peter directs his gaze at the man, and so does John. They look right at him, and they say, look at us. Okay, let's go back to verse 3. Seeing Peter and John go into the temple, then Peter and John look at him and say, look at us. Interesting. You know what I hear in this? I hear a man that saw so many people coming and going and passing him by that he didn't really look at people anymore. And I also hear somebody who's probably living in shame. Because you don't want to know what shame does to us? Shame makes us not want to be seen by anybody. I don't really want to be seen by you. And I really can't see you either. And I think that that's what we're reading here in the text is a person who's carrying an incredible amount of shame for their condition. Shame that causes him just not to even look at anybody anymore. I really don't wanna be seen and I really don't wanna see other people. And I just love this passage because I think what's dripping off the pages of the scriptures here is such a great, incredible lesson for us and that is to treat every single person that we encounter with incredible dignity. And what we see here in verse four is this incredible, incredibly dignified moment where Peter and John look right at him and they say, hey, hey, look at us. Look at us. I know you saw us come by because you asked us for alms, but did you really look at us? And let us look at you. And look at verse five, something shifts here. And he fixed his attention on them. He fixes his attention on them. Something, something changes, something shifts. Many people with disabilities in that day were shunned from worship. They weren't allowed access into the temple because they were deemed spiritually inadequate and inferior. And so this man probably has a reason to feel and to carry shame. This mentality is displayed in John chapter nine. You'll remember this. The disciples encounter a blind man that was born that way and they ask Jesus, whose sin is responsible for this? The parents or the man? And Jesus immediately rebukes them. And he says, this man was born this way so that the power of God's work might be displayed in him. And the same is true for us today. 
Our broken places are the places where beauty comes through the gospel. And sometimes God isn't healing your physical ailment or something in your life right now because because he's going to bring incredible beauty and glory in and through it. This man was born this way so that the power of God's work might be displayed in him. And some of you were born this way. Some of you are carrying something in your life right now so that the power of God's work might be displayed in your life. Could this man, this is so awesome, could this man have ever imagined that 2,000 years later we would be talking about him? Isn't that awesome? A man that was hiding in many ways, who wouldn't look at other people, and now he's, his story is recorded in the council of God. And 2,000 years later, we're talking about him, we're studying his story, because the power of God was displayed through his brokenness. That's why Paul said, I'm going to boast all the more gladly in my weakness because the power of Christ will rest upon me in my weakness. In my weakness, I am made strong. This man fixes his attention on them, verse 5, and he recognizes that Peter and John are different. We should be different as a church. We should be different as Christ followers. Where we look at people in the eye, we give them our attention, we treat them with dignity, and that translates to people being filled with dignity and understanding that we're different. And now this is great. He says, uh, can I have some alms? He expects to receive the alms that he asked for in verse three because he's got their attention. They're looking at each other. This is an incredible moment, right? And he says, you know, can I have alms? I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm expecting to receive what I asked for. And isn't this so typical, this interaction? Isn't this typical of, of, of what we ask God for and how God deals with us? We ask God for things and God wants to give us so much more than what we ask for. I think it's true New City, that we often expect far too little of God in our lives. We ask the Lord to change our circumstances, and God wants to change us. And sometimes he changes our circumstances, and sometimes he doesn't. And sometimes he doesn't change our circumstances because of his commitment to change us. This is such a story, don't you see? This is such a story of the gospel. This is such, such a story of our own salvation and how we meet Jesus. Many of us came to Jesus asking him for very little and we got so much more. And friends, God doesn't promise us prosperity in this life, but he does promise us, right? He promises us his spirit to never leave us or forsake us, and he promises us power over sin and death, something so much more. There are people in this world who are preaching prosperity and my word to that would be read the scriptures. Look at what happens even in this story, this interaction. Let's pick it up here in verse six. After this gazing back and forth and giving attention and asking for alms, something incredible is going to happen here. Peter answers and he says, silver and gold, I have not. I don't have any money. Look at us. And we're left to inference that part of looking at us is like, look at us. Like, we're not people of wealth and affluence. Peter says, you know, I, I, we don't have this to give to you. What other people can give to you today, we can't give to you. But what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. 
And verse seven says, they took him by his right hand and raised him up and immediately his ankles and his feet were made strong. Let's be careful. Let's be careful, church, to never, ever substitute earthly resources, anything that we have with the real power that we have, the real gift that we have to give other people, which is Jesus and Jesus alone. I I love that Peter uses his full name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, because biblically a name represented someone's full identity. And essentially what Peter and John are saying to this man, what we have to give to you is Jesus and that's all you need. It's more than you could ever hope for or imagine. The fullness of Jesus is being given here. And what I love here in this passage as well is verse six represents for us as a church these only God prayers that we're believing God for and praying. That's what only God can do. Only God can heal somebody in this miraculous way. Only God can do that. But verse seven represents how we get to participate. Verse seven is them reaching their hand out and saying, I'm gonna help you up. So only God can heal the people around us. But we get to reach our hands and say, can I be a part of it? Can I journey with you? Can I participate in the miracle and give to you what I only have to give, which is Jesus and Jesus alone? May we never let our facilities or the resources that God gives to us as a church and blesses us with, yes, those are great, but they're tools. They're only tools to spread the kingdom of God. And may we never substitute the tools and the resources that God's given us with what he's really given to us, which is Jesus. I love the story of Thomas Aquinas and the Pope in the 13th century. Thomas Aquinas was a Catholic priest. The story goes that that he was visiting with the Pope one day, and as they were visiting, uh, a bag of money was put on the Pope's desk, a bag of indulgences, and the Pope began to look through the money, and he said to Thomas Aquinas, you see, young man, you see, young man, the church doesn't have to say silver and gold we have not anymore. To which Thomas Aquinas replied, yes, sir, and I'm also afraid that she can also not say Rise up and walk. Woo. As Christians, as Christ followers, we have something to offer the world that no one else does. And it's exactly what the world needs. Jesus and Jesus alone. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The fullness of who God is. The man leaps up, verse eight says, and we're gonna come back to that word. He leaps up. He stands, he begins to walk, and he, don't miss this, he enters into the temple, something that had been forbidden for his whole life. He wasn't allowed to go in and worship and pray as everyone else did, but now he walks in, and not only does he walk, I think he has a little, a little hop in his step here. He's leaping, he's praising God. Uh, he, he's Uh, causing a stir and people are beginning to notice him walking and praising God. They recognize him. Isn't this the guy? This is the guy. This is the guy that's always been here. Every time we come here to worship, he's sitting at the gate. He's asking for money. This is the guy. This is, oh my goodness, what has happened? The the word that Luke uses here is halomahi. It's It's a really rare Greek word. It's only used here in the New Testament. It's actually a word that comes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Testament. And the reason why I tell you all this, because it's really, really important and really, really cool, because it comes from Isaiah chapter 35. And this is when the prophet Isaiah is specifically writing about the coming Messiah and what's gonna happen when Messiah comes. 
And Luke borrows that word and inserts it here in our miracle. In fact, let me, let me read the passage to you. Just a couple of verses. Isaiah 35, verses five through six. Isaiah writes about the coming Messiah, Jesus. He says, when he comes, the eyes of the blind are gonna be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man, here's our word, leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Halomahi, to spring forth, to leap. And Luke uses that word to say, it's here. Jesus is here. He's come. And we're living in this incredible era of grace because of Jesus. He's saying the prophecy has been fulfilled. And the church is now carrying that forth through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of salvation and what Jesus came to do. And it's a fulfillment it's an incredible demonstration, right? This miracle is. It's this demonstration, bottom line, that sets up this incredible proclamation. And that's the pattern, again, that we see over and over in the pages of Acts is the, these, these demonstrations of grace and mercy and power that, that lead to this incredible proclamation of grace and truth and gospel. And it's the same thing that happens here. Right after the miracle takes place in the first 10 verses, we're not gonna get in the whole sermon here, but beginning in verse 11, Peter begins to preach his second sermon, and you can read it on your own. The remainder of chapter three is his sermon. And it's because of this incredible demonstration that a crowd of people gathers around them, again, in the temple. Both of his, his first two sermons take place right in the temple. To the Jew first and then the Gentile, Jesus said. So here's the gospel, to the Jew first, right in the temple courts, Peter is proclaiming, and check me on this, look at verse 15. Part of Peter's sermon, you talk about, you know, like flowery sermons, how about this for a flowery sermon? Verse 15, he says, um, hey, you're the ones that killed the author of life. Ouch. He says, we were witnesses to that. You were the ones that cried out, give us Barabbas and condemn Jesus to death. But he just, doesn't just heap condemnation on them, right? No, he calls out the truth, but then he says, repent, turn, change, give up your old way of life, give up your selfishness, and turn to Jesus, and that's the call on each of us as well. Give up your old way of life and turn to the author of life. The truth is that it wasn't just one group of people that killed the author of life, we all did. Our brokenness and sin placed Jesus on the cross and he willingly submitted to that on your behalf to pay in full your sins, past, present, and future. And it's this incredible miracle, this demonstration that sets up this incredible proclamation. And the church and the gospel witness of the church are causing quite a stir here in Acts chapter three. Things are beginning to churn. And by the time we get to chapter four, the scripture says that there are over 5,000 men, Acts chapter four, verse four, four, that are now a part of the church. And that's just men. So we include women and children, over 10,000 people now, by the time we get to chapter four, are now a part of the early church. The church is exploding and the religious institution starts to take notice and they begin to strike back. And you're not gonna believe, right? You're not gonna believe what happens next. But you gotta come back next week for that. 
Acts chapter four next week. Acts chapter four. Let's pray together. Jesus, may your word dwell richly within our hearts. You prayed that we would be sanctified in your truth. Your word is truth. So may your word have its way in our hearts today. We pray that the gospel, the simple truth of who you are, Jesus, and what you've done for us would be proclaimed and demonstrated in our own lives and through our lives. And when that happens, Jesus, we pray together as a church that the eyes of the blind will be opened. We still believe that the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, that lame men will leap like deer, that the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert of our lives. To all of that, Jesus, we say yes and amen. Now give us the wisdom to know what you're asking us to do and give us the courage today to do it. In Jesus' name, amen.